0: Read this morning from the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 1. Hebrews, chapter 1. My purpose in reading from this chapter is to especially call your attention to the first uh, three verses of this chapter, which reflect on the sonship of Christ, to which we must call your attention this morning. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world's who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his persons, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he hath by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be unto him a father, and he shall be a to me a son, and again when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him, and of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, but unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God is for ever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation thus far? We call your attention this morning particularly to the instruction that is given us in our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 13. Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God, since we are also the children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God, but we are children adopted of God by grace for his sake. Wherefore callest thou him our Lord? because he hath redeemed us, both soul and body, from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, and hath delivered us from all the power of the devil, and thus has made us his own property. With this Lord's Day, beloved, the Catechism concludes its discussion on the names, the chief names of the Mediator, as well as the second article of the Apostles' Creed, uh, which confesses, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. Were you here for the last two Sundays? You will recall that in the previous Lord's Days eleven and twelve, the Heidelberg Catechism dealt particularly with the names Jesus and Christ, and in the present Lord's Day uh, concludes this discussion on these names with treatment of the name Only Begotten Son of God and Our Lord. So you feel that this morning, in the first place, we have to deal with the matter of the Sonship of Christ. And I would remind you that in question 80, or 33 of the Catechism, the purpose is not once more to lead us into a dissertation on the doctrine of the Trinity. You might get that impression. When you read here, for example, in answer to question thirty-three, because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God, that the Catechism here wants us once more to uh, consider the sonship of the second person in the Holy Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Ghost. Now, I must point out to you, of course, that that doctrine of the Trinity is basic here. No question about that. And that when the Catechism speaks of the eternal and natural sonship of Christ, it is certainly reflecting on uh, the second person of the Holy Trinity. No question about that. But it is not the purpose of the Catechism to lead us repetitiously once more into the doctrine of the Trinity. I think that's the farthest from the thought of the Catechism here. Rather, the Catechism wants us to be confronted with the question, what is it that you think Concerning Christ, that is, the Son of God in the flesh, whose Son is He? So that we are confronted here with the question concerning the person and the essential sonship of the Mediator, which is not a human person, as you will discover presently, but that he is the person of the Son of God. You may recall, if you are knowledgeable in the New Testament, how that more than once in the Lord Jesus, when he was in the flesh, uh, confronted his contemporaries with that question. First of all, to his own disciples. In that incident of near Caesarea Philippi, and recorded in Matthew 16, the Lord said to his disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they answered variously. And finally, When he says to them, but whom say ye that I am? And that was evidently his purpose in the first place. Then he receives the answer through the mouth of Peter, of all the apostles, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's a remarkable answer. That meant that they saw that he was not a human son, that he was not the son of man, but he was personally the son of God. A little later, in Matthew 22, you read that Jesus confronted the Pharisees with that very same question, what think ye of the Christ, whose son is he? And they answered, the son of David. Now, and Jesus remonstrates with them a little bit, and he says to them, well, if that is the case, and of course the references to Psalm two, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? But the point is that Jesus confronts them with this question, and this is precisely the question that the catechism confronts us with this morning What think ye of the Christ? Whose son is he? That's the idea. Also of question 33 of the Catechism here in this Lord's Day. In the second place, I must also call your attention to uh, question 34 of this Lord's Day. And you will notice there that the question is not simply, nor only, uh, Wherefore callest thou him Lord? That's not the idea of the question. Why is he called Lord? This is not simply a dogmatic question, you understand, but one that is very spiritual and practical. Why do you call him our Lord? And strikingly, this is also the verbiage, the wordy wording of the of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. And we must notice that. It is not simply the question this morning, why is he called Lord? Why is he Lord? But what do you understand when you confess, I believe, that Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, is our Lord. What is your relationship to him as Lord? What is his relationship to you as our Lord? That's the question. So the Catechism here remains, continues to be very practical and <clears throat> I am reminded here, of course, of the structure of the Catechism as it is already suggested in the first Lord's Day. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer to that question is also a very practical answer, and that is, I am not my own, but I belong unto a faithful Savior, and if you study the answer, then it all sums up in that 34th question and answer of the catechism here this morning. He is our Lord. I belong to him with body and soul, in life and in death. I am not my own. He is my Lord. That's the idea. With these remarks in mind, I'd like to consider with you uh, the subject of our Lord's Day this morning, under the theme, God's Only Son, our Lord. God's Only Son, our Lord. And there are two thoughts that I'd like to develop in connection with that subject. First of all, point out to you uh, Christ's Sonship in relation to ours. (coughs) Catechism here, asks that very practical question. Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God since we are also the children of God? You'll notice that it asks the question concerning Christ's Sonship as it is related to our Sonship. And so... I call your attention, first of all, to that subject, Christ's Sonship in relation to ours. And in the second place, I call your attention to his Lordship over us. And that, of course, has to do with that second question, Wherefore callest thou him our Lord? It is rather striking that the Catechism here calls our attention to the fact that relative to the Sonship of Christ, he was God's only begotten, and that stresses the point that as far as his Sonship is concerned... And that too, in distinction from ours, that it was an essential and natural sonship. Our sonship, as we hope to point out presently, is not essential and natural. His is, and that's the uniqueness of the Sonship of Christ. He is essentially, that is, according to his being, his essence, the natural Son of God. I have pointed out here before many times that uh God has only one son, only one natural son. If there's going to be any others, and there are, they will have to become sons in an entirely different way, as we will see present. God only has one son. And I must point out to you, as I suggested in my introductory remarks, that the intention here is not to go back again to our studies on the doctrine of the Trinity to discover once more the uh, three persons in the Godhead and so forth. That's not the intention of the Catechism, nor is it even the intention of the Catechism to uh, emphasize the fact that uh, the Son here is God's Son by eternal generation. You may recall when we were busy with Lord's Day 8 and the Doctrine of the Trinity, uh, that we called your attention to this at that time, that God's Is eternally generated of the Father through and in the Spirit. Now that's not the intention of the Catechism this morning, uh, to take us back to that subject, but it is specifically the question here, who is the man Christ Jesus? Who is he personally? That's the idea of the question. Now, you all know, of course, that humanism, modernism, uh, looks upon him merely as a human following the heretical doctrine of Arius, a heretic, an arch-heretic of the uh, third century. Christ is merely a man personally, he's the son of Mary, and I presume if they want to be consistent, they also have to say he's the son of Joseph, and that of course is the is the lie that's not the truth. Oh he was Mary's son, all right, he was born of the Virgin Mary, as we'll see. Next Sunday, the Lord willing. But he is personally not Mary's son. Personally, he is the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Essentially, he is not Mary's son. What Mary brought forth is a child that was conceived and born in time. That's all. Fleshly, earthly, human nature. That's all. But he is personally not human. Jesus was not a human person. Now you put a big line under that. That's fundamental. You and I are human persons. We have a human personality. And we have that in the human nature. But Christ, who had a human nature, was not a human person. And a person, of course, is the subject. Of all our acts, whether it be in us or whether that be in Christ, he was the person of the Son of God. And that was necessary because if he were a human person, of course, he would be under the guilt of Adam and he couldn't possibly bring salvation for us that could merit. That would be forever impossible. He would be as guilty as you and I are because personally he would be connected to Adam who transgressed and who was guilty and by nature dead in trespasses and sins. He must be not a human person but the person of the Son of God. Now that comes out in those two passages that I mentioned in my introductory remarks. First of all, in Matthew 16, and again in Matthew 22. Whose son is he? And in each Instance, it is the intention of the scriptures here to have us conclude that he is the Son of God. But there are many other scriptures that clearly indicate this. You read, for example, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I understand by the term word there, that is, logos, the second person of the Holy Trinity become flesh. John says that, too, in verse 14 of that chapter. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But in verse 1 already, it be very evident that John, who especially emphasizes the divinity of Christ, the Godheadness, the Godness of Christ, says in that very first verse of his gospel, in the beginning was the word. That means... The second person of the Trinity was in the beginning, that is, eternally, he was there. He was with God, who is eternal God, and he was God. That identifies him with the very essence, with the very being of God, he's divine, he's not human. His divine word of God. And this is brought out again by Jesus himself in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 30. After Jesus had spoken of his sheep, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. No one can pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. No one can pluck them out of my Father's hand. He makes this very striking statement. I and my Father are one. There he draws together uh, the Christ according to his person his essential nature to God. We are one. I am God. He never disowned that idea. He never discredited that idea. He encouraged it. So much so that the Apostle John, who, in distinction perhaps of all the Apostles, understood the divinity of Christ and our relation to God as children of God, writes in his first epistle, chapter 5, And who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Notice that. Only he overcomes the world who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's more than simply a Son of Man. And this is essential for eternal life. You cannot have eternal life according to the scriptures... Unless you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So this doctrine is very important that the Catechism dwells on here. In verse 20 of that same chapter, 1 John 5, you read this. We know that the Son of God is come and has given us an understanding that we may know him, that is true, and we are in him, that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. Now what you must notice there is that God's Son is in Jesus Christ. He was right before that apostle. It was in his bosom that he lay his head when they were at the Last Supper. The Passover feast, when Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, he put his head in Jesus' bosom. The head in the bosom of the Son of God, who appears as Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now, all the scriptures... (coughs) as well as our confessions, of course, underscore the truth that Christ, according to his essential nature, is the Son of God possessing all the divine attributes. Now it is true that when he appeared in the flesh, uh, much of this divinity was covered up. You didn't see it. And that is due to the fact that he became the Son of Man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that is why Isaiah said already when he saw him in in a forecast, Who hath believed our report? If you look at him, he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You can't recognize him. And they didn't either, and that's probably the reason. And the thinking of the adversaries that took him to the cross. They were getting rid of a, of a man who, who was an imposter, who claimed he was the Son of God, but who blasphemed when he said it. I am the Son of God. They crucified him. They despised him. That's because that divinity was covered with a veil of flesh. So that the enemies conceived of him as being merely a human person and a human nature and a very evil person and a very evil nature. And they got rid of him. Only now and then in his earthly ministry did this divinity shine through the veil of his flesh. I think you have a very clear instance of that. Uh, For example, when Jesus walked on the waters, coming to his disciples in the ship, they saw the Son of God, with all the power of divinity, master of the waters, walking upon the waters. You see it again in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the enemies came to apprehend him, Jesus went out to meet him and said to them, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. If you seek me, take me. Let these go their way. And they fell to the ground and became dead men. I ask you, how can you explain that they would fall to the ground and become as dead men? unless it was that at that particular moment he allowed his divinity to flash through the veil of his flesh. They saw God before them. The holy God. And when men are confronted... Sinful, corrupt men are confronted with the Holy God. They become as dead men. But it wasn't the day of judgment yet. Not of the ungodly. And therefore Christ must ask that question the second time. Once again I say unto you, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And then, of course, he covers up his divinity. And as the meek lamb is led away by them, captured as the sheep for the slaughter. In the Catechism... Wants us to see. And therefore ask you and me. The church of Jesus Christ. Today. Who is Jesus the Christ? What do you think of him? What is your conclusion? Is he just a man? Is he just merely a human being? With a human nature. Body and soul. Or is he. Very God of God. The person of the Son of God. And your answer, beloved, must be the latter. Or there is no salvation possible for us. If he is merely a man, then he accomplishes nothing. Nor can he accomplish anything for us. He is like unto us a sinner worthy to be perished in the cross. But he is the person of the Son of God who dies on the cross in human nature. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, you must notice with me that the catechism is not only concerned about his personality, about his divinity, but it is very much concerned about our relationship to him. You and I are also called the sons of God, are we not? We are called the children of God. How did we get that way? How do we stand in relation to his sonship? That's the question. And then I must point out to you that originally, of course, man was created the Son of God. If you look in the genealogies of Christ, as they appear in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, And in the very last verse of that chapter, you will discover that the writer there is giving the generations of Christ as they go back to Adam. And then it says in that verse, Adam, the son of God. You can look it up when you come home. That's striking. Adam, the Son of God. Now does that mean that he is the Son of God in the same sense in which we just spoke of the Christ as being the Son of God? Oh no. He was the Son of God by creation. He was created Son of God. He was created not simply out of the dust of the ground, but in the image and likeness of God. So that in a creature way, he reflected the image of God. And in that sense of the word, he was the son of God. A created son. Now we all know, of course, that Adam fell. And when he fell... His nature was not essentially changed. He remained a man. He didn't become another creature. He remained a rational, moral creature, one that was capable of bearing an image. What changed is that he lost God's image and took on the very opposite, so that we may say in the most literal sense of the word, he looked like the devil. He talked like the devil. He acted like the devil, not as the Son of God. He lost also his sonship, and all that that signified, spiritually, he became the image bearer of Satan. Now, God's son, his only begotten son, had to become a man, a son of man, In order to redeem that fallen man, not only to bring him back again to his original status in paradise, but to raise up that man unto the highest possible pinnacle of glory that God could possibly give unto the creature. And so what Christ did on the cross, beloved, is actually to write with the pen of his own blood the adoption papers of all the elect. So God makes through the work of Christ and through the Spirit of Christ sons of God, children of God whom we profess to be. I have to talk to you tonight about this subject, so I'm not going to take much time about it this morning. (coughs) We are going to reflect once more this evening, the Lord willing, on our sonship, how we become sons. But you must see here that it was the very purpose of the redemptive work of Christ to make us, who by nature were enemies of God and enemies of Christ and reflectors of the image of the devil, to become once more uh, image bearers of God, reflecting his image in the highest possible sense of the word. And that too through the adoption which Christ accomplishes through his Spirit. And this is beautifully expressed in this text which I called to your attention a couple of weeks ago when we spoke to you on 1 John uh, 2, verses 1 and uh, 2. Behold what manner of love. The Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, particularly in Romans 8, dwells on this same idea, the same truth. For as many as are uh, led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye received not the spirit of, of bondage uh, and uh, fear, but ye received the spirit of adoption in which we cry out, Abba, Father. That's beautiful. That spirit of Christ, the spirit of adoption which is in us, not only makes us to be spiritually the children of God, sons of God, but we also act like it. We address Him who is God, ever Father, ever loving Father. <coughs> so our, the relation of our Sonship to Christ is while his is the sonship of essential and natural nature, as the Son of God, and therefore God's only begotten, we are begotten of him through the Spirit of Christ through adoption. And our sonship is therefore a reflection of the eternal and essential sonship Christ. It's never the same. We are not sons of God in the same sense, in the essential natural sense of the word, as Jesus is. In the second place, I must call your attention to that second question concerning His Lordship over us. The question is. Wherefore callest thou him Lord? And you'll notice wherefore callest him our Lord, because he hath redeemed us, both soul and body, from all our sins, not with the gold or silver, but with his precious blood, and hath delivered us from all the power Of the devil, and thus hath made us to be his own property. Under the lordship of Christ, therefore, comes three things. First of all, he is our Lord because he purchased us, he bought us, and he didn't do that with material instruments such as gold and silver, but with his precious blood. In other words, we were purchased through redemption, through atonement. In the second place, you'll notice that the Catechism here also informs us that his lordship consists in this, that he delivers us from all the power of the devil. He not only redeems us from that power, but he delivers us so that we are no longer in bondage. We're free sons of God. Free servants of God. Under one Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ. In the third place. We are informed that his lordship consists in this. That we are his property. That means he owns us. He owns everything that he has laid also at our disposal. You don't. I don't we don't even own ourselves that's why I say this Lord's Day reminds you awfully much of that first Lord's Day when the question was asked what is your only comfort in life and in death and the answer that the Christian gives there is first of all negatively I am NOT my own that's the first thing that he finds out when he is saved too I don't belong to myself anymore I'm not my own. That's the same thing here. He is our Lord means I don't own myself. I'm not my own boss. I can't do as I please. I don't belong to me. Oh, I tell you, this is a humiliating truth because, you know, as we are by nature, that is just the opposite. We take our position with that atheistic humanist who said, I am the captain of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I, big I, I can do this. I can do that. And God comes with his word this morning and he tells you, you're nothing. All of your mastery is smashed to smithereens on the truth. Christ is your Lord. You don't have anything. You don't own a red cent. Oh, and I wish that you and I could get that in our head. You know? I venture to say most of our time we spend in wondering what we're going to do with what we got. And we Look at our possessions as though these are things which we have acquired by our own wisdom and by our own ingenuity and power. And nobody has a right to interfere, to come into our kingdom and tell us what to do with it. Not even the church. You have people like that, you know. They criticize the budget system. They say, no consistory is going to tell me how much i got to give. And if you take that attitude, you are a socialist, you are a communist, you are one who says everything that is in this world is mine, and I'm going to get it by hook or crock. That's the philosophy that is so prevalent in our time, and which filters in even into our democracy today. Every man, you can explain all unionism on that basis, it all operates on the principle of I am the captain of my fate, the master of my soul. I can do with all that I have and all that I'm going to get as I please. Now all of that philosophy and that devilishness is smashed, beloved, by this truth. I am not my own. I am not the Lord. There is only one who is Lord. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is our Lord. He is the one who purchased me, first of all. He purchased me with his own precious blood from the power of death and of the devil. He made me to become through his Atoning sacrifice. His possession. And by his spirit and word. Delivers me out of the power of Satan. He literally makes me to become. His servant. Whose mind and heart always responds. Speak Lord. For thy servant hears. What wilt thou have me to do? I am not my own, but I belong unto Jesus my Lord. Oh, what a different color that places on all of our life, doesn't it? And all of our thinking. And you know something? If you can understand this truth that I'm talking to you about this morning, you won't ever have another weary in your soul. You won't worry about anything. Because you know what? That Lord is also Lord because he has to defend you. He's got to take care of his own property. You don't. You don't have to take care of yourself. He must take care of you. You have a claim on him. In a very real sense of the word, you have a claim on him. You say unto him, Lord, thou didst purchase me with thy blood. I am not thy own. I belong unto thee. Therefore thou must care for me. And therefore I don't worry anymore what's going to happen to me in this life. All things are in thy hand and all is in thy power. Thou art our Lord, our Lord, who must defend me over against all my adversaries, must deliver me from all my foes, and must bring me at last into the inheritance which thou hast prepared and art now prepared for me and for all thy own. That's what you mean when you confess. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. And of course, you can only say that by the Spirit of God. As what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, no man can say Jesus is Lord but by the Spirit of God. Peter on the day of Pentecost said to his audience, God hath made this Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. You understand this lordship of Christ is that which is given unto him as a reward of merit. He died on the cross and God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand and crowned him with lordship over all things. There is nothing that is excluded from his dominion and power and authority. He rules over all. And in that power, he has the ability to make all the enemies to become our servants. So that everything works together for good unto them that love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now you can understand, and so can I, The solid comfort which the children of God possess, when they get rid of themselves, they lose themselves in Jesus, who is their Lord, who so possesses them and so governs them that all things, even those things that appear now to be against us, must work together for our salvation in our eternal good. May God grant unto us the grace of the Spirit to acknowledge this, not only now while we are sitting here in our ease in the house of God, but also presently when we go into the world and are required to suffer for his sake, because he is your Lord. You know, that time is coming. You must confess Jesus is your Lord also over against all the enemies. And just as they did to Jesus on the cross, they're going to do to all his disciples. They're going to kill you for Jesus' sake. But lay hold on you. don't belong to And therefore, there is not a fear in your soul, but all things will work off for your everlasting good. Amen. Apropos, and to the point here, in that verse you read, Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. That means that you and I cannot realize our way nor all of the steps that must be traversed in that way. But when we commit our way unto him, he sees to it that we are brought to our destination. That's the meaning. And that applies here too. Pour out your heart before him, ye people. God is a refuge for us. He will heal your need and supply all of them. And that means that also in this coming season, the farmer with this confidence can go out, whether he gets a crop or he doesn't, and believe that that God to whom he entrusts himself will take care of all his needs, materially, spiritually, and not only for himself, but for all his own. David says that to his people that are with him. And if this is the psalm that indicates David's flight from Absalom, then you can understand that these people were in the same situation as David was. And I imagine very much that they were looking to an arm of flesh, to deliver that. They said, probably to David, don't worry David, Joab will see to it that the men in the army will protect you. You don't have to be afraid. Absalom won't do anything to you as long as Joab is on his post. Or there probably were some who said, what an awful situation we're in now. The king must get off from his throne and flee into the wilderness and be as a prey to the wild beast who will tear him to pieces. That was the situation. David says to them, and that is the word of God, trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him. God, God alone is a refuge for us. Our hiding place, our security, our safety in the time of storm. And that's what he must be for us too. And then notice, Silah. That word sila, you know, means really rest. And this was a song. Psalms were songs. They were sung. And if you know anything about music, you have a sign of rest. That means you pause. The music stops at that point. Here also there is a pause.
1: A rest!
0: And that means that what you have said in this verse is a perfect whole. It is complete. You don't need anything else. This is it. Sing then, O Zion, your God, the God of your salvation, who watches over you you are very precious to him. He gave his only begotten son to deliver you. Shall he not with him also give you all things and make you to rejoice in him as the God of your salvation in heavenly perfection and glory? And he will make all things that even now seem to be against you to work for your good. Indeed he will. Take your rest. All is peace. Isn't that beautiful, beloved? And if you and I, by the grace of God, can lay hold upon that, by true and living faith, and put it into practice, you will never have a sleepless